0: Hey unorthodox fans, it's Mark Oppenheimer, not in the studio this week, it's just me right here in my basement. The cat is hiding out somewhere, the dogs are upstairs, the daughters are asleep. We weren't going to do an episode this week. We have an amazing episode planned for next week. It's going to be our second annual apology episode in honor of the Yom Kippur season. So we were just going to take this week off and uh, stay home, relax, plan for that. But we decided that, you know what, we just didn't want to go a week without talking to you. We, we love you guys so much and we get such amazing feedback from our listeners. And we know that you're a part of our lives. So Liel had this idea. He said, here's what we should do. We should each just take our iPhones or little digital recorder down to our basement tonight and we should each tell a story about new beginnings in honor of the new year. And then we'll email them all to Shoshi, our uh, wonderful producer, and she'll stitch them together, and it'll be like a little mini-episode. It won't be like the others, no guests, just uh, the three of us, each telling a story. And we didn't talk about what our stories were going to be. We said, all right, we'll each go home, and the the only rule is it has to be something on new beginnings. Um, So I don't know what Liel's got for you, and I'm not going to know until I hear this, and I don't know what Stephanie's got for you, but I'll hear it along with uh, the rest of you okay so i'm working up the nerve to tell my story because it's pretty personal and feels a little bit embarrassing but um, but before I work up the nerve, I, I just want to I want to take this chance to say to you guys that we've been doing unorthodox now for a little bit over a year, and we've had half a million downloads and we've had hundreds and hundreds of letters from you, and we've done a bunch of live shows and it just continues to grow. Uh, we're not taking a dime from it, we're not asking you for a dime. I just want to give you my thanks. I just, I just want to say that um, we had no idea what we were doing when we started. We just figured that we wanted to bring the conversations we had about Judaism and what it means to us and how it kind of veers off and those conversations veer off into everything under the sun, that they're just a sensibility, just a way of looking at the world, and we wanted to bring them to more people. And for me, um, I'd always wanted to do Uh, more radio and as a kid I actually would pretend to be announcing Yankees games which does connote that I didn't have so many friends necessarily when I was nine or ten which is true but anyway um, you know for me the chance to work in audio was um, was great so we're just so thankful to Tablet for giving us the chance but also to the many thousands of you who have come along as our listeners and please stick with us and please stay in touch we try to respond to every letter but um, even when we don't We read them all. So here's to another year. Here's to a full 5777 with all of you and for many years beyond. Okay, here's my story about new beginnings. Some of you might know that I was a big debater in high school. Sometimes Liel and Stephanie will make fun of me for this. So in seventh grade, there was a debate team. It was mostly for high schoolers, but I got permission to join it. So I debated as a seventh grader and the debate topic for the league for that entire season was Star Wars, uh, Reagan's Ronald Reagan's strategic defense initiative that was gonna put lasers in the sky to shoot down Russian missiles or something. And I think that with my partner, Todd, who was a junior, I think we went nine and four over 13 weeks or something, which was like a huge success. Debate was kind of my everything. And we had this amazing team. They were my, my best friends um, and At the time, there was this big international circuit where high schoolers would get together for international tournaments, and I got to go to some of those. It was my everything. I don't want to use the cliche that it saved me, because that makes it sound as if if I hadn't had debate, like I would have ended up huffing glue uh, at the Citgo station. That's not really true. I think I still would have done fine. What I can say is that to a great extent the debaters were my people. And these were other people who liked to argue, who loved ideas, who were interested in philosophy, who wanted to talk about what utilitarianism was. Um, it was my kind of nerd. The word nerd just kind of didn't get much respect at all. The word nerd was seen as arrogant, supercilious, and jerky. So that was a social problem for me and it was also a, a self-esteem problem. But the debate team was made for my kind of people. So. I really felt at home at those tournaments. So then college time rolls around and I had to decide where to go to college. And I think I'd always wanted to go to Yale because um, my dad had gone to Yale and I'd always been reading the alumni magazine. And, but more than that even was that my junior year in high school, Yale students had won the big international debate tournament. And so I knew, as I was applying to college his senior year, that Yale was like a serious debate place. So that singed the deal. And when I got in, um, I decided to go. So I arrive at Yale, fall of 1992, just to set the to set the time. Bill Clinton was running for office um, against George Bush. Nirvana was, <laughs> you know, it was the height of grunge. Seinfeld was maybe two seasons old. You get the idea, right? I get to college, and sometime around the end of the first week, I see a poster that it's time for tryouts for the Yale Debate Association, the YDA. And I was so psyched. I mean, I just—I had spent a year since getting into Yale, building it up in my mind, um, this idea that I would get there, and I would be a collegiate debater, and I would go off to the bigger international tournaments. And I went to the tryouts. And they gave you some topic, and you had to leave the room and prepare a speech on that topic. These topics are always some some cliched um, saying, like the pen is mightier than the sword, or you know. And you have to come back and give a, a four minute kind of impromptu freestyling talk on it. I came back in, and I totally killed. I had like funny quotations, and I had interesting historical facts, and I had witticisms and barbs and um, aphorisms, and I just killed. They all applauded me politely, and I left. And the next day, I went to the place where they told us that the callbacks would be posted, and I hadn't even gotten a callback. I didn't make the team. And I'd been, like, one of the best debaters in the history of New England prep schools. I mean, that sounds obnoxious to say now, but like, I kind of thought I was going to make the college team. And all of a sudden, I had that experience that I think everyone gets when they fail at something big that they've been really good at for the first time, um, where you think, holy cow, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? This was my plan. And... um, I know it sounds ridiculous. I mean, it sounds so crazy, right? Because not making the debate team, that means nothing. It literally means nothing. You know, a 42-year-old me can look back and say, who the heck cares? But at the time, as an 18-year-old whose whole identity was bound up in this community of arguers, of debaters, of talkers, that these were the people who had given me a sense that, like, I was cool in some community, however laughable that might seem now, like, they were the people around whom I felt like I really, really mattered. And now I got to college and that community of people, the college version, college point of the debaters said, we're not even going to give you a call back. It just, everything fell apart. I didn't know at that moment what the next four years were supposed to hold for me. So I started sobbing and I said, maybe I should transfer somewhere, somewhere that I can make the debate team. Anyway, it was a whole thing. And of course it passed and within a week, you know, I licked my wounds and I don't know, I'd probably gotten drunk, really drunk, for the first couple times. And then the most amazing thing happened, which was I realized I didn't care. I realized I didn't miss debate. And I started doing other stuff. You know, I was trying out for plays and um, drinking more, partying more, finding more and different kinds of friends. And then when sophomore year rolled around a year later, I wasn't even going to try out for the debate team. And then a couple friends who I'd since made, on the team had said oh Mark you should really try out I bet you'd make it this time and I did and I made the team and then I almost never debated I almost never went to tournaments I had just kinda moved on and that was okay I'm not kidding when I say that not making the debate team my freshman year in college was actually one of the best things that happened to me if I'd made the team I would have spent four years trying to rise to the top of this new little hill not even a mountain but this little hill of debaters and it would have taken me several more years to realize that those kinds of victories and those kinds of trophies don't actually matter and not making the debate team freshman year was the beginning of thinking about what actually matters in life and so now when I have this amazing life when I'm married to someone I love and I have these beautiful children and dogs and cat and wonderful neighbors and just this sense of contentment and this kind of aversion to achievement chasing for its own sake, I mean, I'm pretty proud. I think my values are lined up pretty well, and I really think that began when um, the board of officers or the debate team didn't choose me my freshman year. So that was my new beginning. Here's to all of yours.
1: Hi, it's Stephanie Butnick, and here is my story about new beginnings. I remember the first time I really felt like a grown-up. It was my first night in Prague, where I was spending the fall semester of my junior year of college, and we were sitting in a bar down the street from our dorm. I was in a beautiful, unfamiliar city, on my own, and I could drink as many enormous Czech beers as I liked. The next morning, after I threw up, I called my mom on Skype to tell her all about it. To this day, NYU putting extra-large water bottles on the nightstands of all incoming NYU and Prague students remains something I am truly grateful for. I obviously wasn't as grown up as I thought, but I was something. I was on my own. Sure, there were the invisible safety nets surrounding all American students studying abroad through American universities, or as they call them, colleges. But I had to fend for myself in a way that I hadn't had to, while safely ensconced, on campus. That meant figuring out where we go for dinner, pizza usually, whether I'd brave the Czech gym my roommates went to, definitely not, and learning how to navigate the Czech liquor store, a task that became much easier once we found the bottles of two-liter wine. I remember thinking a lot that semester about what I wanted to be. A train ride to Vienna had me frantically emailing a friend on my Blackberry to tell her I had decided to become a rabbi, and her responding stateside to ask if I knew that being a rabbi meant more than performing bar mitzvahs and weddings on the weekends. But nothing opened my eyes like a trip to India my roommate and I took during our 10-day fall break, the most distinctly American of all school breaks. It was her idea, and our moms had to set up a phone call with each other to decide whether we could go. I went to a Czech doctor to get a vaccine and malaria pills. As we rode through the streets of Delhi, I couldn't help but think how provincial, even dull, Prague seemed in comparison. When we woke at sunrise to see the Taj Mahal or to take a boat ride on the Ganges, I remember thinking, I am so lucky to be here seeing this. I felt at once hugely significant and unbelievably tiny, just a speck in this big wide world. When we got back to Prague, we wore our silk scarves and embroidered tunics, the importantness of our trip woven into each. And when the semester ended and we returned to school, moving into apartments off campus and ditching the underclassmen meal plan, life returned to normal. But in the back of my mind, there were always those 10 days in India, when anything seemed possible, and largely was. Like getting on a plane to Brussels and connecting to Delhi, just because you wanted to. And because your mom said it was okay.
2: going to tell a story about the summer I spent riding the Trans-Siberian Railway, which involves Mongolian smugglers with lamb shanks wrapped in newspaper and corrupt Russian border guards with pockets lined with bribes. But then my friend Menachem Butler came over and, you know, like, two good Jews with gray beards. We started drinking scotch and telling stories. And Menachem told me this one story that reminded me of why it was important, especially this time of year to speak less about yourself and more of others. And so I'd like to share it with you. It's a story about the great Hasidic master, Rabbi Elimelech of Lishansk. It was a day before Yom Kippur, and the Hasidim, the followers of the great rabbi, rushed over to him and said, Tell us, Rabbi, how do you prepare for this most awesome, this most holy day in the Jewish calendar. The great rabbi thought for a minute and then he said, You know, the truth is, I don't know how to do it. But Moishele, the shoemaker, he knows how to do it. So the Hasidim, they find this answer strange. What can the shoemaker know that the great rabbi doesn't know? But they decide to pay Moshallah a visit anyway. And they walk over to the shoemaker's house. They peek through the windows and they see Moishala sitting around his simple wooden table, eating his simple, humble dinner. And when he's done, he looks up at his children and he says, Okay, the great moment is here. Bring out the two books. And the children rush away and they return with two books. Now, one of these books, is very, very large. The other is very small. And Moishela looks up to the heavens, and he says, God, master of the world, it's me, Moishela, the shoemaker. God, I want to read you something. And with that, Moishela picks up the little book, and he says, God, this is the book of my sins. I've been impatient with my children, yelled at my wife. I've charged a bit too much for my shoes sometimes. You know, maybe I've kept some strips of good leather to myself. You have to admit, God, these are pretty minor sins. Then Moishele puts away the small book, and he picks the large one. This God, he says, this is the book of your sins. A mother died and left her nine children helpless. A famine has left families starving for bread, and that war that never ends, it has already killed thousands of people. God, master of the universe, these are major crimes. But I'll tell you what, if you forgive me this year, I'll forgive you. The Hasidim are amazed by that. They run back to Rabbi Elimelech, and they're so excited to share with him all this wisdom. And when they're done telling him the story, Rabbi Elimelech bursts out in tears. What's wrong? the Hasidim ask. And the rabbi says, don't you understand? Moishele had God in the palm of his hands. He should have said to him, no God, I won't forgive you. You have to redeem the world. Shana friends.
3: Hi guys, I'm Alyssa Goldstein, one of the producers of Unorthodox, and I want to share a short paragraph written by one of my favourite Australian writers, Helen Garner. She's 73, lives in my hometown of Melbourne, and has been writing prolifically fiction, non-fiction, essays, journalism for decades. Anyway, this paragraph comes from everywhere I look. newest book it's a collection of essays and short vignettes and it's set at the beginning of a new day and it fills me with a sense of peace and hope which are two things that are pretty hard to come by in the current political climate in the us so i hope to pass that on to you after the birthday party i stayed over at her house it was a humid Sydney night. A small fan stood at the foot of the mattress I slept on, sending a quiet steady airstream along me hour after hour. I dreamt I held a creamy little baby close to my chest all night. Not my child, but it knew me, trusted me and consented to sleep in my embrace. In the morning I had to catch an early plane. I slipped out of the house without waking anyone. The pavements were wet a cab cruised close to me and blinked its lights. I got in. The driver was a young man in a white embroidered cap. He drove in silence through the industrial streets and the light grew over the city murky with rain, the huge Sydney figs, the frames of new apartment blocks, slender cranes standing motionless among them. Neither of us spoke, nothing was expected of me and I was grateful.
0: Unorthodox is produced by Tablet Magazine. As you know, we are on the web and we invite you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, if you want our newsletter, send us an email at, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Also, send us notes and tell us what you thought of the show or of any show. I also want to add that um, if you did want to hear more about my debate story. If you felt like you didn't hear enough about me and my public speaking, I did write a book about my years as a debater. It's called Weisenheimer, A Childhood Subject to Debate, and uh, I think there's still some copies left on Amazon. I host this show with the wonderful Stephanie Butnick and the sly and marvelous Leah Liebowitz. Our audio production is by Shoshi Shmulovitz, and all sorts of production is also by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Telushkin. Thank you so, so much for listening, and um, we'll see you next week for our apology episode.